0: And
1: once again, I welcome you to the show, whether you are a longtime wrong thinker or you're a, you know, wrong think curious individual, just kind of scoping the situation out to see if it's uh, your scene. Well, welcome to the program. We've got a lot of different things to dive into today. I'll tell you this up front. If if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, my goal, first of all, is not to convince you that I have all the answers, that I'm right. You should agree with everything I say because the, you know, the reality is I could be wrong. It's happened before, it'll happen again. I would like you to be more certain about who you are and what you stand for, and uh, more importantly, what you can do with whatever influence you possess right now at this instance. That's what it's all about. Not, you know, we've got to advance this particular political party or that particular political party. It's not even a matter of vanquishing your enemies. If I could be so bold, there's way too much enemy-driven thinking in the world today. And while I, I understand and I can relate to the frustration that people feel when it comes to um, you know, things that, that people are trying to impose on them or injustices that they see, some of them real, some of them imaginary, I can understand why people get enemy-driven, but I'm here to tell you from firsthand experience, that's not how you change hearts or minds. That's not how you affect actual positive change in the world. You want to really make a difference? How about this? Understand the philosophy of freedom and live it. And the power of your example, believe it or not, is going to draw more people into your orbit than you can imagine. Now, having said that, again, I don't have all the answers, but I got some really good uh, directions and some ideas for thought starters that'll hopefully get you pointed in the right direction. I found an article as I was looking around today doing my show prep From Tom Mullen, this was published on luterockwell.com. And the title caught my attention because the title is, Why is Freedom Always the Problem? Tom Mullen says, A year after Americans were ordered to close down society for two weeks to flatten the curve, Bloomberg columnist Andreas Kluth warned, We must start planning for a permanent pandemic. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, because new variants of SARS-CoV-2 are impervious to existing vaccines, says Kluth, and the pharmaceutical companies will never be able to develop new vaccines fast enough to keep up. We'll never be able to get back to normal. And Tom Mullen says get back to normal means recovering the relative liberty we already had in our already already over-regulated pre-COVID lives. And he says, this is just the the latest in a long series of crises that always seem to lead our wise rulers to the same conclusion. We just can't afford freedom anymore. By the way, this is happening in arenas other than COVID. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Tom Mullen says, COVID-19 certainly wasn't the beginning. Americans were told the world changed after 9-11 of 2001. Basic pillars of the American system, like the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, were too antiquated to deal with the new threat of terrorism. Warrantless surveillance of our phone, email, and financial records and physical searches of our persons without probable cause of a crime became the norm. A few principled civil libertarians descended, but the public largely complied without protest. Keep us safe, they told the government, no matter the cost in dollars or liberty. He says, perhaps seeing how willingly the public rolled over for the political right during the war on terror, authoritarians on the left turbocharged their own war on climate change. Previously interested in merely significantly raising taxes and heavily regulating industry, now they wanted to ban all sorts of things, including air travel, driving a car, even eating meat. Well, since COVID-19, however, even the freedom to assemble and see each other's faces may be permanently banned to help the government, quote, keep us safe. Now, Tom Mullen says assaulting our liberty isn't the only characteristic these crises narratives have in common. They share at least two others dire predictions that turn out to be false and proposed solutions that turn out to be ineffective. George, H. W., or George W. Bush rather, warned Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction capable of hitting New York City within 45 minutes and he created the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA to prevent, among other things, a mushroom cloud over a major American city. Do you remember that? Do you, are you old enough to remember those days? Well, here we are 20 years later, and we know there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. At least none that we didn't sell them ourselves. There was no means of delivering those weapons. Tom Mullen says the terrorist threat was grossly exaggerated, and the TSA still has never caught a terrorist. Not even the two mental midgets who tried to set off explosives concealed in their shoes and their underwear, respectively. The only effective deterrent of terrorism so far has been the relatively calmer foreign policy during the four years of the Trump administration, during which regime change operations ceased and major terrorist attacks in the United States virtually disappeared. Interesting. Did you make that connection? Okay, maybe it bears a closer look. Predictions of environmental catastrophe have proven similarly false. Younger people may not remember that in the early 1970s, long before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born, environmentalists were predicting worldwide disasters that subsequently failed to materialize. In 1989, the Associated Press reported a senior UN environmental official says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000 the same official predicted the Earth's temperature would rise 1 to 7 degrees in the next 30 years. Now, Ocasio-Cortez is famous for predicting back in 2019, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. Remember, that that was the basis for her Green New Deal. But Al Gore had warned in 2006 that unless drastic measures to reduce greenhouse gases are taken within the next 10 years, the world will reach a point of no return. So, isn't it too late anyway? I mean, by Al Gore's reckoning, 2016 was the drop-dead date. Tom Mullen says, and with the war, as with the war on terrorism, the war on climate change asks us to give up our freedom for solutions that don't work. Assuming climate change proponents have diagnosed the problem correctly and haven't exaggerated the threat, huge assumptions by themselves, implementing their proposed solution won't solve the problem even by their own standards. And he says its proponents know this. The U.S. has already led the, U- the world rather in reducing carbon emissions without the draconian provisions of the Green New Deal. If you listen to them carefully, the Green New Deal's proponents propose the U.S. give up what freedom and prosperity remain to them merely as an example to developing nations, whom they assume will forego the benefits of industrialization already enjoyed in developed countries. Because of the stunning example, or the shining example, rather, of an America in chains and brought to its economic knees to, quote, save the earth. By the way, his response is fat chance that this latest remake of this horror movie is COVID-19. While undeniably a serious pathogen that has likely killed more people than even the worst flu epidemics of the past several decades, although this is hard to confirm since public health officials changed the methodology for determining a virus-caused death, the government and its minions have still managed to grossly exaggerate this threat. Gone is any sense of proportion when discussing COVID-19. Yes, it's certainly possible to spread the virus after one has been vaccinated or acquired natural immunity, but how likely is it? Is it any more likely than spreading other pathogens after immunity? And if not, then why are we treating people with immunity differently than we have during more dangerous pandemics in the past? Similarly, it's likely possible for asymptomatic people to spread the virus, a key pillar of the lockdown argument. But again, how likely is it? The theory COVID-19 could be spread by asymptomatic people was originally based on the case of a single woman who supposedly infected four other people while experiencing no symptoms. Anthony Fauci said this case lays the question to rest. The only problem was no one asked the woman in question if she had symptoms at the time. When it turned out she did, The study on her was retracted. A subsequent study did not link any COVID-19 cases to asymptomatic carriers, and yet another after that concluded transmission of the disease by asymptomatic carriers is not a major driver of spread. Huh. Haven't heard much about this in the news headlines, have you? Yet policies based on this falsehood, like lockdowns and forcing asymptomatic people to wear masks, remain in place. Most importantly, none of the government-mandated COVID-19 mitigation policies work. No retrospective review conducted with any semblance of the scientific method scientific method rather has found a relationship between lockdowns, mask mandates, or social distancing and the spread of COVID-19. In fact, the most recent study suggests lockdowns may have increased COVID-19 infections in addition to all the non-COVID excess deaths they caused. So over and over, authoritarians overhype crises to scare the living daylights out of the public and to propose solutions that have two things in common. They demand more of our freedom, and they don't work. It's always all pain and no gain. One wonders how many repetitions of this crisis it will take before the citizens of the so-called land of the free finally think to ask, Why is freedom always the problem?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: And by the way, I don't know if you have feedback for me. I hope you do. Whether you're one of my five listeners... Or just somebody passing through who happened to stumble across this uh, broadcast or podcast. I would encourage you please go to my show notes at the You're gonna find links to all the different stories and essays that I mentioned. You're gonna find a lot of great reading material. And this is this is for thought starter purposes, not to tell you what to think. But you'll also find there's a nice little feedback button where you can comment and it will send replies directly to me. And I can tell you, without a hint of of shame, My audience is small enough at this point that, yes, I will respond. Even if you have, uh, you know, mean things to say, if there's something that can help me do a better job of what I do, I am more than happy to hear that. So I prefer constructive criticism, but if you just need to get it out of your system, feel free. My skin's pretty thick. Again, this is at thebrianheidshow.com. Check the bottom of the show notes, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And give me your feedback. One of the things that has been on my mind is, you know, since the the Biden, I'm putting this in quote marks, election and and inauguration, um, we're supposed to believe, the narrative is we are supposed to believe that everything has changed. No longer is there a president in office sending out mean tweets, everything is, you look at the policy changes, uh, Biden has worked feverishly to undo everything that happened under Trump. And I've got a really great essay here from Caitlin Johnstone, which says, the fact that Americans think Biden has changed things shows how narrative rules our world. And, and if that gets your, your hackles up, I'm going to ask you, please bear with me. Just hear out some of the observations she makes and ask yourself, is that plausible? Could that be the case? Because she says, nothing of significance has changed since Trump left office, apart from the narratives about oh, how much things have changed. And here's the, here's the case that she makes. The wars are still going. Washington is still the hub of an oligarchic, globe-spanning empire. Americans are still being impoverished and propagandized into political impotence by an unfathomably wealthy, wealthy plutocracy. Sanctions are still squeezing people to death in Venezuela, Syria, Iran, and North Korea. The world's worst mass atrocity is still continuing in Yemen. The kids are still in cages... By the way, if you haven't seen the video of uh, Senator Ted Cruz down at the border trying to, uh, to get a picture of, of what's happening you know, with, uh, with the, the border crisis, I'm, I'm one who doesn't obsess a whole lot about the border because sometimes I think that can be ginned up you know, for, the, for the enemy-driven people. Boy, foreigners coming to my country and taking my jobs. That's a surefire thing to get people angry. But some of the footage that uh, Senator Ted Cruz has has put out in the last uh, you know couple of days, where he's actually there at the border with the Border Patrol, oh my goodness, there's a lot of folks packed into those facilities who have been intercepted and you know are being held you know pending just trying to decide what to do with them. Do we send them back or whatnot? And you know I don't mean to be insensitive when I say this. You know everybody's given like space blankets. It uh, and and. Please don't read anything racial into this, but it looks like a huge collection of foil-wrapped food, you know, burritos or something, all, all lined up in there. And this this administration official keeps trying to stand in front of Ted Cruz's phone. He's trying to film and see, you know, what's going on, and she keeps saying, please respect these people, please respect these people, please respect the people, and just tries to get in front of him every single time that uh, that he, you know, is, is showing what's happening there. And I don't mean to sound, you know, terribly jaded on this matter, but it's not the people who are wrapped up in those space blankets. And I mean, there is a bunch of them packed into that detention facility. That's not what she's concerned about. That's not who she's protecting. Her job is to make sure that people like you and me don't get too clear of a picture of what's actually going on there. Because otherwise, we might have some questions. In fact, we might start feeling a sense of, hey, this doesn't look right, and they can't have that. And I'm sure that there were people along the, I think, throughout the ages, anytime someone has, has been engaged in something that was, uh, shall we say, less than uh, noble, whether it's the concentration camps in World War II, whether it's the gulags of, of the Soviet Union, the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge, anytime someone is exercising um, that kind of you know absolute authority over people or forcing people into a situation where they're being held en mass no rights, no due process yeah there's there's always somebody whose job is going to be to make sure to make sure that people aren't too aware of what 's going on here. This is part of that deal with the devil that Jacob Hornberger refers to that most Americans willingly made with the national security apparatus, and i don 't even know what the what the answer is here, but I'm telling you. Unwillingness to face the truth squarely and to recognize, that, yeah, there's there's a ton of people coming across the border right now. There's a ton of people being held in detention right now. I don't know, you know, if if we should be concerned that they're COVID positive or whatnot. But it's very curious how the current administration is trying to minimize that and and you know score social justice points. Please respect the people. Please respect the people. Yes, the people you have imprisoned there. Gotcha. We'll respect them by making sure nobody knows about it. That's, that's respectful. Okay, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent. Back to Caitlin Johnstone's article. She says, if you were to take the entire U.S. centralized power structure and assess its overall behavior as a whole, you would find that the actual behavioral changes amount to the tiniest fraction of a single percentile of the total. If you would just been analyzing the raw data without looking at the news stories, you'd see that the money, troops, weapons, and resources have continued to move in more or less the same ways after January 20th as they were moving before. What has changed is the narratives, the stories that Americans are being fed by those who are responsible for controlling the way people think, act, organize, and vote. So if you're a Democrat, you've been hearing that the, the country is now a thousand percent better without the orange menace in charge. If you're a Republican, you've been hearing that it's a thousand percent worse. In reality, in terms of the overall operation of the empire, both domestically and internationally, hardly anything of significance has changed apart from the narrative overlay. That make you uncomfortable? I'm only asking because it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I, I think she's right. I think Caitlin Johnstone's on this. She says, which is not to say that nothing of significance has changed. It is significant that U.S. liberals no longer are being psychologically pummeled with hysterical narratives about a looming fascist takeover and their government being infiltrated at the highest levels by Kremlin operatives. This relentless barrage of emotional intensity has been literally making people sick. And the fact that they're no longer being psychologically abused in this way, that's not insignificant. So the actual U.S. empire is chugging along, essentially the same way it was before Trump left office. But people's actual quality of life is different anyway, simply because they're being fed different narratives by the mass media. They truly feel inside as though they're living in a very different America now than they were prior to January 20th, even though as far as the real world is concerned, they most certainly are not. And this is just a perfect illustration of how pervasively human consciousness is dominated by mental narrative. So much of our society is made out of mental stories in our heads, identity, language, etiquette, etiquette rather, social roles, opinions, ideology, religion, ethnicity, philosophy, agendas, rules, laws, money, economics, jobs, hierarchies, politics, government. These are all made up conceptual constructs with no existence in the physical world, no existence outside of our shared stories we've come to collectively regard as true. She says, our society is made up of collective narratives. And our experience is dominated by mental narrative as well. The majority of most people's interest and attention from moment to moment goes not to the raw data their senses are feeding their brains about the material world, but to thought. To mental chatter about a me character, which is itself ultimately just another conceptual construct. and all its adventures, real and imagined, what it wants and what it doesn't want, who has wronged it and who has won its approval. Caitlin Johnstone says, For most people, present moment awareness of their actual surroundings is largely eclipsed by mental narrative the majority of the time. I think she's right about this as well. And you know the crazy thing about it is, most of the time, we don't even notice. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments. She's got just a couple other thoughts I'd like to share. You'll also find a link to this in the show notes. So I would encourage you, stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: I've been sharing with you a column from uh, Caitlin Johnstone. You know, on paper, she and I would be pretty close to polar opposites. But I really like the way that she assesses things and she makes me think. And so I'm encouraging you. Take a look at what she has to say, particularly as it relates to the real world versus the narrative world. Because narrative dominates and if you ask yourself, well, how can you say that narrative dominates? Um, I would just say next time you go out in public, next time you see how many people continue to wear masks even in states where there is no mask mandate, where COVID cases have fallen drastically, where deaths are nearly non-existent at least from COVID, but people still wear the masks. Why? Because the narrative says it's dangerous out there, and I'm doing my part, you know, to to go out masked in public. It's a powerful thing. And she's got links in this article to a couple of different articles that she's written, um, the real world and the narrative world, one of which she points out we inhabit two very different worlds simultaneously, the, the actual real world and the narrative world. And her point is manipulators exploit the differences between these worlds to trade narrative world currency for real world resources, like your time, like your allegiance. So at least if you're aware You can pick up on when your, you know, when your chain is being yanked. Caitlin Johnstone says, both externally and internally, human life is dominated by narrative to a truly massive extent. Is it any wonder then that the cleverest and greediest of humans expend so much effort working to determine what our society's dominant narratives will be? From news media propaganda to Hollywood to internet censorship to government secrecy to think tanks to Bellingcat to Wikipedia entries, vast fortunes are continuously poured into controlling the dominant worldwide narratives by the power structures who who benefit from them. And this narrative management campaign is so far reaching and so ubiquitous that even highly intelligent people are swept up in its manipulations simply because they're receiving the same narratives from so many different sources and receive insufficient contradictory input to create doubt in them. If I could just point out, this is where wrongthink comes into play. Because wrongthink will have you asking the kinds of questions that will provide contradictory input and create doubts in some of the official stories that were being told and no matter how many people tell you that's a dangerous place to go, no, that's a, good, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. It's a necessary thing if you want to maintain your autonomy, if you want to claim your self-determination. Caitlin Johnstone says the dominant narratives tell us the same things over and over again. Capitalism is working great. By the way, she's, she's going to disagree with me on this one, but what she's referring to here is crony capitalism. And yes, it's, it's working great for those who are attached to government or who are, you know, in bed with government. So, free market capitalism, I'll defend that, uh, you know, all, all the day long. But she says the other narratives include things like your government is your friend. Governments who oppose your government are bad. The so-called liberal world order is a planetary status quo of nonstop murderous imperialism, exploitative neoliberalism, and what she calls ecocidal capitalism running underneath a propaganda soundtrack babbling endlessly about how everything is fine and it's going to get better any minute now. But she says it's all lies, half-truths, and distortions. The status quo is killing, oppressing, and exploiting human beings all around the world while rapidly destroying our ecosystem and putting us on an increasingly dangerous collision course with nuclear war. By the way, that last one, I think she's right about that. There's a lot of saber-rattling going on that uh, does not seem to be necessary or responsible, but that's another topic for another time. Caitlin Johnstone says, We will transcend our enslavement to mental narrative and evolve into a mature species with a mature relationship with its recently evolved capacity for abstract thought, or we will continue on our self-destructive trajectory until we meet an unpleasant end. Okay, now she's looking at some pretty big-picture stuff and some kind of scary big-picture stuff at that. But I agree with her, her basic premise, which is you got to snap yourself out of the hypnosis, the, the spell, the thrall that we're under that keeps us believing what we are being told. I um, saw a meme last week that just made me laugh, and it was from a, a musician named Zuby. And it was something along the lines of, I just can't get my mind around how people who could have gone through everything that happened over the last year and still conclude the government cares about me and I should give it more control over my life. <laughs> and I think, yes, that's exactly what people should be questioning. And by the way, I just want to be clear, there is a place for good government. There is such a thing as good government. I find myself leaning more and more towards, uh, towards anarchy in the sense that I don't want to be ruled. I don't need to be ruled, and neither do you. But unfortunately for a lot of people, that word anarchy has a very negative connotation. They, they think that's, you know, the uh, cloaked, uh, bomb-throwing anarchist out there, you know, trying to start the next world war. I don't see it that way. Anarchy is people simply figuring out how to solve things without running to government and incorporating force into the solution. From that standpoint, I'm kind of like Joseph Sobran, who, even though he passed away about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, said you know, the, the journey of his life from, from being a very uh, devout Catholic and, and I think a very principled conservative commentator, he says, I find myself becoming a reluctant anarchist. He didn't shed his morality along the way. He just realized that even, even with limited government, you're still dealing with an entity that, if not properly contained, limited, checked, and balanced at every turn, is going to act in murderous ways. And the problem is, it doesn't usually do it against everybody all at once. It picks unpopular groups. Those branch Davidians, why? You know, we ought to, we ought to do something to them. Those polygamists, we ought to do something about them. As long as it's being aimed at somebody who isn't you, most people are pretty okay with it, right? Well, it's just trying to protect us. So when I say, yeah, there is such a thing as good government, I mean, good government is the kind of government that exists for the purpose of securing and guaranteeing your God-given rights. Period. And that means that they don't involve themselves. Government officials would not involve themselves in your life unless there is a question of someone has actually caused harm, whether it's through violence, whether it's through fraud. Unless someone can show measurable harm, government doesn't need to be a part of all the decisions you make. Now look around at all the things that are becoming mandated, things that are subject to government. And it's, it's not an exaggeration to say, you can't so much as flush your toilet without some bureaucrat having signed off on the design of your toilet to make sure it's a low-flow, water-conserving kind of toilet. Does it work? Well, I don't know. I have to flush it three different times, but hey, you know, at least we're conserving water. Yeah, where we used to only have to flush it once. Sorry if that's an indelicate example, but I think you, you get the picture. So the idea here is, yes, we are being fed narratives that this is all normal, this is good, and it's not just, you know, the hardcore left-wingers that are, you know, going for this, you know, and this diabolical desire to control other people. That same lust for domination, that uh, uh, libido dominandi, as St. Augustine coined it, it's, uh, it's present on the right as well. In fact, you'll find it all across the political spectrum. The tougher thing is to resist the need to control other people and to focus on letting people make as many of their decisions themselves without coercion, without somebody, you know, essentially sticking a gun in their ribs and telling them, you know, you've got to do this. It's for your own good. And the crazy thing is we've seen this play out over the last year. We've seen the ridiculous lengths that different people in authority will go to to try to impose, you know, their viewpoint. So we have to destroy, you know, hundreds of thousands of small businesses. Well, you know, that's a small price to pay for me being in charge. Now, see, that's not how the leaders see it. I'm just trying to protect the people. But it really is about them being in charge. Well, people think to themselves, I, I don't really believe there's such a thing as, as tyranny going on here. After all, if there was something going on, why, the news media would tell us about it, Right. If there was something hinky happening, you know, at the hands of our governing people, why, I'm sure the media would tell us all about it. Yes, wouldn't they, though? <laughs> Sorry, they're too busy kissing political rear ends to uh, to even think about that. They they consider themselves part of the political system, part of the political class. So what that means is you have a lot of different sources who find it in their interest to cater to what the powerful and the authoritative are telling them and to insisting that you have to believe this narrative without going too far down the rabbit hole i'll just point out there there would be no need to question last year's election and to question whether or not that was an up and up honest election if we were able to freely discuss and hash out well let's look at the facts let's look at the evidence and see was it truly you know carried out without any kind of uh, strangeness you know like five different states suddenly stopping counting all at once and then miraculously resuming their count with hundreds of thousands of new votes or millions of new votes that somehow put the uh, current president in the lead. You don't have to ban the truth, or you don't have to ban discussion of these things if that is in fact the truth, but that's where we are. You can't talk about that. In fact, we want you to sign a loyalty oath that everything was great last year. I'm a skeptic, so
0: I'm not about to do that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to
1: the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. That is, uh, that's the wonderful ammo company started by my friend Spencer Worthington. I actually had him on the show last Friday, and uh, Spencer is such a great person, not just because he makes you know things that go bang, but uh, because he is, he's a great person through and through. I like his philosophy. I like his commitment to freedom. I like his commitment to, uh, to being a force for good in the world. And that goes far beyond just the ammunition that his company, HSLAmmo.com, creates. It also involves, you know, being a, a terrific ambassador for the Second Amendment, which he is. I've seen this firsthand. I've gone to the shooting range with him. I've watched how he helps uh, new or novice shooters sort things out. And and he does it in a patient way. It's not a, it's not that uh, that gun store stereotype of, let me show you what's going on here, Sonny, since you, know, you obviously ain't got a clue. I mean, he's very, uh, he's very, uh, very congenial and patient and generous. I mean, you know, somebody's out there testing out their gun for the first time, you know, maybe they didn't bring very many targets. He'll spot them targets. Here, take these. You can use those. Do you have enough ammo? I've got some extra. Here, go ahead and shoot mine. I mean, I just love how the guy approaches things, and because of that, I want you to be aware of HSLAMO.com. You'll find a link in the show notes at the com. I would so recommend. Visit him, visit his website, do business with him if it strikes you as the right thing to do. But just know that there are good people out there who are making a serious difference in the business. And I'm very happy that HSLAMO.com is one of the sponsors here. All right, I might be getting a little bit sentimental in my old age, but it makes me happy to read that multi-generational homes are actually making a comeback. Hannah Cox explains how families are coming together to make the most of a highly competitive housing market. By the way, I don't know if you've shopped for homes lately, if, you have, uh, if you've been looking around. It depends on where you live, of course. There are some places, I assume in Detroit, you could probably still get a, a pretty fair-sized home, you know, in terms of square footage, for very, very cheap. Oh, is it in a bad neighborhood? Well, yeah. (laughs) Is it uh, it in a state of ruin because it's been abandoned for a while? Well, yeah, but, you know, for, hey, 15,000 bucks, you can get a, you know, 3,300-square-foot home. Sounds like a steal. Oh, did I mention it's in Detroit? Nonetheless, in my home state of Utah right now, the the real estate market is absolutely insane. It's super competitive, and this is making it hard for buyers to to purchase a home. By the way, building one... (laughs) Good luck. You know, the, the sheet of OSB, particle board, or um, I, there's another name for it. Uh, it's not particle board, but it, it's, uh, it's the plywood that, that's used in construction. That was seven bucks or nine bucks just a year or so ago. It's upwards of 30, 35 bucks. It's incredible. The costs have gone up so much. So here's what Hannah Cox has to say. She says, Scott Hatch is a construction inspector in Orange County, California. Hatch always wanted to purchase a home, but struggled to afford the steep price tag in his area. Well, recently he found a solution. He and his wife, Lonnie, purchased a $466,000 property with friends in Flagstaff, Arizona. Now, the town is seven hours away from the Hatches, but that purchase will allow them to enter the real estate market. Hatch says, I just wanted to put my money somewhere that I could go to and know it's mine. Now, Hatch is not alone in being priced out of his market. Housing costs account for one-third of after-tax income in the U.S., taking up a significant portion of Americans' take-home pay. And all signs point to this expense only continuing to rise. So the housing market's not keeping up with the supply needed to meet demand, and as a result, prices are skyrocketing, in part because of record high lumber prices that have driven up the costs of new home construction. In the past year alone, the median home price shot up 14.4%, with 36% of listings going for more than their asking price. Amazing. We have to coach these first-time home buyers initially and say to them, the market is crazy right now. If you want to play the game, that's great, but this is what we're going to have to do to win. That's according to Kathleen Martin, a real estate agent with the Spiker Group of Long and Foster Real Estate in Maryland. So, here's how many are responding to the crazy real estate market. Hannah Cox writes, while well, the competitive market could create additional headaches for some buyers or price people out altogether, a growing number of families are finding a way to beat the system. They're moving back in together. A survey by the National Association of Realtors found that some 15% of recent home buyers between April and June of 2020 plan to have multiple adult generations living at their new property. That's an 11% increase in multi-generational buyers over the previous year. Additionally, a Realtor.com report shows listings with terms like in-law cottage or granny suite sold 23% faster in February than they had the prior year. Now, there are many factors that could be driving the increased demand for housing. People are fleeing high-tax, strict lockdown areas and relocating to freer pastures. A huge uptick in remote work work means that many are now seeking larger living spaces to accommodate their new home offices. And as families have spent more time indoors, many are pursuing larger properties with more amenities or more space. The growth in multi-generational home buying, she writes, is one that seems to be a direct result of problematic policies adopted during the pandemic. Many schools have remained closed and child care has become increasingly hard to come by. Working parents have struggled to juggle their own responsibilities on top of virtual learning, pushing many women out of the workforce altogether. Multi-generational homes provide more adults who can watch kids, help them with their schoolwork, and run the household. Then there's the problem with nursing homes multiple governors infamously forced COVID-19 patients into nursing homes at the height of the pandemic, leading to disproportionate deaths among the elderly. Even for those fortunate enough to have escaped this horrific scenario, many elderly care facilities have prevented loved ones from visitations. Multi-generational homes provide an opportunity for adult children to look after their parents, ensure they're receiving appropriate care, and spend precious time with aging loved ones. See, this one speaks to me because that's exactly the situation I'm finding myself in. Annie and Katie Kirking of Seattle are adult sisters in the process of buying a four bedroom home in Spokane where they plan to move with their aging parents that they pulled out of an assisted living facility at the beginning of the pandemic, along with Annie's partner and daughter Evie. We're very grateful that we can do this together, Annie said. I feel I can feel pulled between making decisions that are best for Evie and decisions that are best for my parents. Being under one roof. I think that push and pull will be much less. Hannah Cox writes, in short, 2020 was a year of financial woes and unpredictability. Government lockdowns pushed millions of adults out of work and created widespread economic uncertainty. Many fear the economy will not bounce back altogether, and rightfully so, given many of the Biden administration's economic policies. Buying a home with multiple family members provides a more solid economic footing and allows people to spread the increasing costs of a mortgage across multiple income earners. This is a positive example of a bottom-up solution to top-down controls. When politicians apply top-down solutions to problems, they wreak havoc on individuals, owing to what economists call the knowledge problem. In the words of F.A. Hayek, if we can agree that the economic problem of society is mainly one of rapid adaptation to changes in the particular circumstances of time and place... It would seem to follow that the ultimate decisions must be left to the people who are familiar with these circumstances, who know directly of the relevant changes and of the resources immediately available to meet them. Well, during COVID, we witnessed something different. For the most part, our leaders did not leave decisions up to the people most familiar with the circumstances and instead attempted to micromanage the lives of millions of people. Predictably, their efforts had numerous unintended and detrimental consequences. But she says, yet despite government meddling, we're also witnessing a positive economic response in the form of bottom-up solutions occurring at the micro level. While many Americans have been crushed by the government's COVID policies, they are coming up with ways to confront the new problems that could have numerous societal and individual benefits. Multi-generational homes allow for families to conserve resources, afford nicer homes, provide more support for parents, and allow children to have closer relationships with their extended family unit. These are communal benefits previous generations benefited from, but that we have increasingly lost as work pulled people further from their family ties. Thus, while COVID has in many ways upended our way of life, there are many opportunities for us to correct our course in its wake and to find new, or in this case, old ways of doing things that produce richer, pun intended, lives. And this may be just one such example. I got a link to this in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com Again, this is from Hannah Cox, who's a libertarian, conservative writer, commentator, and activist. And she uh, had this published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Yeah, I think life handed us a pretty good bushel of lemons uh, here within recent memory. But uh, this sounds like the best way I've heard so far to uh, turn it into some pretty sweet lemonade. And if there's one thing that I have taken from all of the uh, various uh, ups and downs of, you know, the COVID response, it definitely has reinforced in my mind just how important family actually is. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for being a wrong thinker. Consider becoming a monthly patron or sponsor of the show. Please subscribe to the podcast. Let your friends know about it
0: as well.